Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'm joined by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who has lived the life of a revolutionary scholar in a way few of us can claim. A longtime participant, organizer, and ally to movements for decolonization, and liberation. She was active in the American Indian Movement and the International Treaty Council beginning in the 1970s. She taught in one of the first Native American Studies programs at Cal State Hayward and helped develop departments of ethnic studies and women's studies. She's written numerous books on indigenous history and two memoirs, Red Dirt, Growing Up Oki, on her childhood in Oklahoma in the 1940s and 50s in a family of sharecroppers, and Blood on the Border, a memoir of the Contra War, recounting her years as a witness to the brutal U.S.-backed war to overthrow the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Today we'll be discussing her most recent work, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, just out in paperback from Beacon Press. Covering several centuries in a brisk and moving narrative, Dunbar-Ortiz lays bare a process of genocidal colonization and indigenous resistance obscured by colonial mythology and patriotic bluster. An American way of war, born from frontier counterinsurgency and premised on annihilation, still inflects U.S. imperial projection in the so-called War on Terror. Lethal weaponry bearing the names of colonized Indian nations chase down villains codenamed Geronimo in hostile territories that generals still call Indian country. Meanwhile, racist rationalizations for wholesale theft, like the Doctrine of Discovery, still determine federal Indian law. This is a book of history, but it is not past. In the author's note that opens this book, Dunbar-Ortiz tells her readers that this came from outside the academy. So I began by asking her to retrace the genesis of an indigenous people's history of the United States. Well, it, it was how, where and how I grew up, I think, why I even became a historian is to try to understand the, the tangle of uh, social relations in Oklahoma, which used to be Indian country, I mean Indian territory, uh, where all of the Native people, the Native nations east of the Mississippi, were forcibly relocated to Indian territory. So it's quite a complicated mass, and then there are the indigenous Native people in Oklahoma who were already there before mm-hmm. others were brought in. So it's, a, it's and then there's the African American population that part part partly because of uh, Cherokee and other uh, nations uh, uh, ha- had slavery. I mean, they they had slavery in the South, and they brought their slaves with them. So they're the freedmen, and then there are 
Civil War African-Americans who combat veterans who were given land grants in Oklahoma after the Civil War. We have these black, white, and red townships all over Oklahoma. And everyone, including my family, was Southern Baptist, 90%, I would say. And But they're black, Indian, and white congregations. So it's a total segregation. And um, so I grew up in, you know, the I came of age in the 1950s during the Cold War. Um, that segregation was still going on, although the civil rights movement was beginning to turn, and that was reflected in uh, Oklahoma City, but not really much down the rural areas where I lived. So uh, my mother was um, assumed to be part Native, although she absolutely rejected that. I mean, she was not in any way proud of that. She was ashamed of it. I always say she she felt like she was marrying up to marry a white sharecropper, my mm. father. <laughs> uh, so that's how really terrible the situation of Native people all over the country. But in Oklahoma, um, what I saw, just terrible impoverishment, uh, colonial, really colonial lockdown. Um, you know, one of the federal boarding schools was right there. It was like a prison. And then the prison itself, the federal prison, was <clears throat> not far from where I grew up in El Reno and was uh, uh, filled with young Native men. So, and Fort Sill was nearby, which was one of the Army bases. Uh, many, most of the Army bases west of the Mississippi were, were built as a colonial system to uh, invade and... Uh, and do uh, Native nations um, and and take you know at least a good part of other land, if not all of it. So I, the all my awareness of any of these things came through simply what I saw with my own eyes because we certainly weren't taught uh, any kind of history. What we were taught in school was, you know, really had hardly anything to do with what was going on around us. And um, that history wasn't taught. It was a very, um, uh, the preacher in the town was, you know, like the leading ideologue who kind of set the standard for what were the ethics and morals and um, and what to think politically. Uh, so that the churches in Oklahoma had a history and this is the history that I I was most interested in when I was growing up because it was my my father's the settlers, Scots Irish settler family, the Dunbars. Uh, my grandfather had been a uh, a labor uh, activist in Oklahoma in the Socialist Party and the Industrial Workers of the World, which was very big in Oklahoma before it became a state when it was Oklahoma Territory, mm. and then. Um, after it became a state in 1907 when my father was born. So um, these stories about my grandfather and about the, the Wobblies and the, the socialists and, you know, the red flags and the gatherings and everything, even though my father was not at all political, he's very poor, uh, poorer than his father had been. My, my grandfather had actually been a veterinarian. Uh, 
but kind of gave up everything, you know, for uh, his political education. The family suffered a lot. So that story, the, the stories on my mother's side were so tragic that she rarely told them. And um, uh, I learned things later, um, you know, about her experiences. Um, well, she told us some. She, she told us it was really important that we appreciate our parents because um, otherwise we would end up in an orphanage. And she had been put in an orphanage. She was, uh, she was a, um, she was a, uh, her mother died when she was two or three, not really sure. And um, she was put in foster homes and she was put in an or- orphanage. She was, um, she was on the streets a lot. And then she was put in a Baptist uh, institute, really for juvenile delinquents, which were mostly uh, Indian girls. And she was actually pretty happy there because it was the first time she had a kind of institutional structure and she played softball. And it looked like the pictures I've seen of that place, she, she had several pictures, her softball team and all. It looked, it looked like a prison to me. Mm-hmm. But that's how she met. Um, she met my father during that time on um, uh, somehow, you know, kind of complicated how she met him. I don't know. But he was a teenager, too. He was 18, she was 16, and she quit school. She didn't finish. She was, I think she she only went to the, she was set back because she didn't go to school for years, so she finished the eighth grade. They both finished the eighth grade. But um, they married very young and started and lived, immediately became sharecroppers. Um, and uh, so then that became very Difficult, you know, when the when the death toll sure. depression came because all the farmers were being foreclosed on, and sharecroppers and tenant farmers were dependent on farm owners, you know, to work for them. Right. So they had no work, and um, but they they stayed. Uh, my dad really tried to um, stay on the land, but then he started driving a truck, and so we we lived in, you know, we we grew up. Surrounded by uh, native people, it was all the Canadian counties where I grew up, uh, central Oklahoma, west of central Oklahoma, was a part of the Southern Cheyenne's uh, treaty territory that had been broken down and allotted in the 1890s. So that land was then given over to uh, uh, white settlers, you know, really poor farmers that came in and and took the land to homestead. So the native people were kind of pushed off the land, didn't own land. They had gotten allotments, but they were very, very small. And um, they had their little towns and little Baptist churches and all. And we played basketball. We had basketball games with them, but it was just, you know, it was just, there was, there was no communication whatsoever. And then in the um, county seat, the um, native, uh, the Cheyenne, uh, who were very uh, uh, important in the development of the Native American church, the Peyote uh, Sacrament Church, uh, the inner tribal um, it wasn't called a church until they took it to the Supreme Court to get 
<clears throat> a religious uh, freedom than one. So that was a Cheyenne case. So these Native American um, church people, it was a way of, of preserving tradition. So they had long hair, women and men, um, with earrings and, um, you know, just look, I mean, they, they just refused to uh, participate in, in, in the white society in any way. And some were, I mean, they were kind of, it was kind of a skid row, um, some drinking, but I think as I thought about it later, they were there to, it was almost like a protest, you know, um, in the streets, uh, sort of like the, the homeless. Uh, you know, it's just like, we're here, you know, you're going to have to look at us and we're not going away. And that made a big impression on me, but my mother would, you know, put her hands over my eyes as we walked. I mean, she said, don't look at them. She was really, you know, she had been saved by the Baptists and the Baptists all, you know. And she was she was native, you were saying, but she didn't necessarily. Um, she hated the idea. She hated, of being native. No, her yeah. her mother was definitely native. Yeah. But unenrolled, and you know, there's so many lost people in those right. relocations, and um, so I've never claimed, you know, native identity as mm-hmm. such. I'm not enrolled in anything. I don't even know what tribe, but I um, it was it was that setting in which I said, I you know, I want. To, I want to figure out what all of this is about because right. it wasn't like anything I read in any books about right. the United States society. And as I got out around, I, I realized that this was kind of a microcosm of the whole country. You know, that that uh, these these were, you know, the, the kind of, as I got into history, the kind of false falsity of history. So... I started studying other histories. I found U.S. history just, I couldn't, um, I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't stand to read it. You know, it was just so boring and, and didn't reflect uh, anything that I knew. So I started studying uh, Latin American history, European history, um, especially, you know, land tenure. And so I went in that direction. So I came back to... Um, U.S. history only as Native history. After getting my doctorate, I did a dissertation on uh, the history of land tenure in New Mexico under uh, two different colonial regimes, the Spanish and, and the, the United States, and the, you know how land uh, changed uh, from communal commons property, uh, not property, to uh, to real estate. Uh, and land sales, and that was also kind of microcosm of what happened all over the country. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, the Wounded Knee uh, uprising had happened in 1973, and I followed it very closely and did some, you know, support work at the San Francisco Indian Center, uh, sending blankets and canned food and stuff. So that went on for two and a half months. And um, then I got involved in the um, uh, Wounded Knee Legal Defense, the 300, more than 300 people arrested there. And, you know, that took me into uh, treaty territory. I hadn't dealt with that, you know, in in my work on Mexico and, you know, northern Mexico um, to the Sioux Treaty of 1868 and other treaties which after those treaties were made, 
land was illegally taken that uh, took this huge great Sioux nation that was in the treaty that covered most of North Dakota, Wyoming, uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, Minnesota, um, and it was all contiguous land base with the Black Hills as, you know, their sacred center. So that was chipped away until there were nine non-contiguous reservations, you know, um, little islands surrounded by white people and white ranchers. So that um, that then got, got me into the international indigenous work as the American Indian Movement formed the International Indian Treaty Council and took this treaty to the United Nations. So this is the started in 1974, and then in, um, uh, it has built into a huge lobby at the UN, and in 2007, we got the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, through. so that as a process that began back in 74 that I was uh, involved in from the beginning. So I've used my legal, you know, I went to law school uh, two years, and then didn't go further, but then I got a uh, international human rights uh, law diploma in uh, Strasbourg, France, and uh, from a uh, kind of prestigious institute. So I've been able to use my historical research skills, and I served as expert witness in a lot of you know cases in the 70s. Uh, so uh, that's those experiences really more than any what I got out of my actual uh, graduate work, undergraduate and graduate because I was an undergraduate history major too, is um, really the um, what I, I consider indispensable skills of um, historical research and historical analysis that I didn't throw the baby out with a bathroom. I still think it is is the most important kind of you know skill, and it's, it's really twisted and badly used by U.S. historians, and you know still today not as much, but just you know to really uh, like a cover up job and and um, uh, taking it to a fundamentalism of oh the documents speak for themselves, you know, without any interpretation and. Um, of course, the documents are all written by the, the colonial authorities, yeah. <laughs> and so this, um, you know, I just the misusing those, and they don't do it so much. It's interesting to go to an American Historical Association conference and go to other disciplines where they're doing Russian history or Latin American history, and it's very good, you know, U.S. historic, you know, American U.S. American historians. The specialization is something else. They do a great job. <laughs> mm-hmm. But well, US, especially Western history, you know, I'm sure you know. Yeah. I want to ask you, ask you about how you use those historical skills. Um, obviously, in writing this book of history, you ask a very daunting question at the beginning of the book, uh, where you ask, how could you possibly do justice to the varied experiences of indigenous peoples over the span of two centuries? Um, and I think that gravity and scope of that dilemma is often what dissuades many um, highly specialized academics from taking such a, 
big project on. So I wanted to ask you how you went about doing it. How, what was your method in assessing what should be foregrounded and highlighted in this book? Um, and, and what, uh, and what shouldn't essentially, because you had to make some very, um, important choices in putting together a book on this massive scope of history. Right. It, it certainly couldn't be um, focused on any one thing, and it couldn't be just this happened and that happened right. and that happened, you know. Right. Um, it, and it was really hard. I worked on it for uh, seven years, and um, I I didn't think it would be that hard because I felt like at my age, and, and I... I felt like I had been writing that book over and over again, that uh, it would really be easy to kind of summarize it. But, of course, I had written it with a focus, like either focus on Pueblo Indian land tenure or the Sioux Treaty or, you know, so I had the sort of same context I was using, but I then would focus in on a particular uh, subject. So it was not so easy to then, you know, kind of uh, develop an overall, um, overall theme. And I thought, well... You know, it has been done. I've read, you know, some really impressive uh, histories of uh, Russia, of Western Europe, of, uh, you know, the Roman Empire, <laughs> that, that uh, it can be done. And it's, it, I, I think the, um, well, several things happen writing a, a, uh, a book uh, in general is that you start off with um, uh, a kind of, you know, you, you had the parameters of what it is you're going to do. And this book was patterned on Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Uh, Beacon Press uh, was his publisher in 1980 when that book came out. And then, you know, of course, it long ago left for Penguin and it was a bestseller and everything. But he stayed very close to the press. He was there at um, Boston University, I mean, um, yeah, Boston, Uni- Boston University mm-hmm. in history, and um, he, uh, uh, you know, consult- they consulted with him about books all the time. And um, he, uh, before he passed away, of course he didn't know he was going to pass away, but it happened to be just, just uh, about three years, two years before he passed away, he suggested to them that they... Um, they do a series of people's histories, do a women's history of the United States, do a, uh, a black history of the United States, or uh, Puerto Rican, you know, di- just uh, different perspectives um, uh, overall on U.S. history to kind of form a mosaic of um, perspectives on, and that they would be histories of the United States, not necessarily of those peoples, but in the process you tell the story of those peoples. And um, so they they started the series called Revisioning American History. And he recommended me for the uh, indigenous one because i known him a long time. Not, you know, we weren't really social friends, but just in movement circles uh, together. And he's, uh, you know, very approachable always. And every time I would see him after, when his book came out, I was very excited, and I, I used it as a text uh, immediately. But I could see that it, um, it was problematic because um, the context really did not disturb what I call the origin myth of the United States. 
and it didn't it, it kind of dealt with bad and good you know authorities are bad and people are good and um, it gives a you know a, a, an incredible uh, opening uh, like no other U.S. history book general U.S. history book had done before that of the genocide you know the assault the, the he I mean it's his documentation and all it's just you know it, it's absolutely riveting uh, but he then, you know, it, it, we've come to call that, I didn't make this term up, but I think it's very apt, uh, Michael Wilcox, I think, made it up, uh, the terminal narrative, you know, that these are, Indians are history, they're, they're just history, you know, they're not in the present, and uh, none of that has anything to do with the present, so they get dropped after that, you know, that, that first horror, you know, like, Original sin, slavery, and genocide. Okay, this is, you know, now with multiculturalism, this is an admission, you know, <laughs> and and that's a step forward. But it it kills off the, you know, it kills off the native people. And and on the other hand, with you know African American history, there's a tendency to forget the slavery, you know, and just deal with the dysfunction of uh, of post-colonialism uh, slavery. So. I I kept saying to him, though, you know, what happened to the Indians? Why did they disappear until Alcatraz, you know, 1969? And uh, he, he, say, he, he would say this. He said, you know, you have to write that book because I don't know how to do that. You know, I mean, he literally admitted that he just didn't know how to do that. He said he really struggled over it. He couldn't figure out how to fit Indians in. And, of course, all I could see is the spaces that were there that, oh, it's easy to fit in. But then I realized I didn't want to fit in. I wanted to have a different, you know, develop a, a, a structure. Fortunately, you know, well, I was one of the people, um, Jack Forbes, Howard Adams, some of us, you know, come back in the early 70s. In the midst of the Third World Liberation movements, um, especially in Africa, uh, the rhetoric and the language of colonialism and uh, settler colonialism, and, and read, I, I read a lot of stuff about South Africa, and I worked, you know, an anti-apartheid movement. So I really learned from um, ANC people a lot about settler colonialism and how it works. And they were saying, you know, it's very much like the United States. They knew more about how the United States worked than we, did, you know, U.S. historians because uh, they saw the Native people as they saw themselves, you know, indigenous Africans. And um, so usually when that comparison is made, they, they, they make the comparison between African Americans and Native Africans. But, it, you know, it's the land question and all this, uh, this is similarity with indigenous peoples. So... I, you know, I had learned, I mean, that was in graduate school that I was working with the ANC in the 60s. So these, uh, you know, this, we, we then in, in Native Studies, very early on as we were developing Native American Studies, started applying some of that, and it was very controversial, even in Native scholarly circles. Uh, to use the I, colonial framework? Yeah, it, it was... Well, I wouldn't say it was very controversial. It it just seemed 
um, Light Divine Deloria was the leading light, and he was one of my mentors, too. I dedicate the book to <laughs> Jack Forbes, Howard, uh, uh, Howard Adams, who is a uh, Metis, um, uh historian, you know, who, um, who wrote a book that was also part, kind of my model. It was, but for him, it was an autobiography uh, history book, and it was uh, it's called The um, Prisons of Grass. A history of Canada from a native perspective, hmm. and he published that in 1974. You know, so that book was, you know, really a model. I thought of what, what we needed to to do, and he was also a Marxist and uh, applying, you know, applying dialectical materialism to what his what he was looking at. It is really a classic, brilliant book, and um, I don't think my book comes near that. You know, that book is very special. But um, how to apply that then to the whole United States? He was only doing, he was doing a history of Canada from a Metis point of view, and, uh, but it mainly focused on Saskatchewan. Um, so I still, you know, with all of that accumulated, I, I knew that I had to have the colonial context and how, how to do that and how how to do that and um, make it palpable to the general reader, because these books are supposed to be for uh, the general educated reader uh, um, that, you know, not not most, um, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's very good for undergraduates to use as, a, as, you know, a text, and maybe even in graduate school for courses on U.S. history uh, to give this perspective and, and not leave out the Native peoples. Um, but I, it was supposed to be a very accessible book, like Howard Sims' original book, and not use any kind of technical jargon, you know, which uh, we, we historians don't use it that much. But colonialism is kind of, not a very common term when you're talking about U.S. history for the general population. So how to explain that, you know, make some comparisons without getting too too technical. Uh, so I worked really hard on that, but I still felt I, um, yeah, I could establish this context, but what was this, you know, the actual theme going to be? And then I read this book got published in um, 2007 that I didn't discover till 2009. Uh, it's kind of a... It's, it's what we used to call a, um, I think, a, uh, it used to be the, the um, historical thesis books, you know, the old German historicism. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that kind of book uh, published by Cambridge University Press. And so it's a small book. It's like, like those theses used, uh, used to be. And it's a military history by a U.S. Uh, Air Force officer who teaches at the Air Force Academy, um, and um, it's called the First Way of War. The um, <clears throat> the development of the um, United States military in the wars against the Indians from 1607 to 1821, and that book just it just blew my mind because it there's no way I could have done all this research that he's done in. Um, um, you know, the documentation to support his case. The, yeah, 
yeah, the title is called American War Making on the Frontier, The First Way of War. So I had this book in front of me. Almost every page is marked and almost every line in the book, you know, is it really was um I mean, I knew immediately when I, I saw the title and just read the uh, uh the introduction that this the that what I was looking for the, the thread I was looking for, for what makes this a general history of the United States, is that it's a, it's it's basically a military history, right? Up until 1890, the relations between Native peoples and Native, uh, uh, and the U.S. government is actually a history uh, of war, and I I had. Already conceptualized that I started writing a book in eighteen uh, in nineteen eighty six called um, Honor Christian Soldiers. Uh, I was doing work on Central America, and seeing once again, you know, this counterinsurgency in action, just like in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Africa, and um, I started writing that book, you know, trying to trace the military and history and um, in the Indian War. So. I kind of dropped it. I wrote about 100 pages, and I kind of dropped it. I actually got it out. I used some some of the material I had developed back then in this book. Um, so I was on the right track. I just didn't have the research base. You know, this is all military uh, documents, you know, historical documents he's using. So he shows that the militias that, um, that you know, the Second Amendment, like <laughs> the right to the militias, these militias were um, were from the beginning in the colonial period a um, volunteer army. Uh, not because they, I mean, it's it's always said, you know, that the, the founders had to say they didn't want to develop an army, and I find that such a spurious claim since they had warships in the Mediterranean by 1808, you know, fighting the Berbers invading uh, North Africa. So I, the Barbary Wars, it's called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound like they were very reticent about uh, military or entangling in foreign affairs. They just had to be, you know, um, had to be uh, unilateral, not isolationist. So um, that's, you know, uh, that old argument between isolationism and internationalism is a it's the wrong thing. It's between unilateralism and uh, uh, internationalism, and and what the U.S. does is is unilateral, and and it was you know from the beginning. So also the um, I I try to um, in the book, as I say in the office note, I I don't do it enough. There's one of the one of the principal topics in. Native scholars now is is uh, finding a way to reperiodize or historians how, how to reperiodize right, U.S. Right. history, and I think that's really important. But I felt like I didn't want ordinary readers to get since this book wasn't meant just for specialists to get lost because they're used to these parameters. So I did it somewhat, you know, and and fairly subtly thought. So I didn't have the Revolutionary War period. I took it from 
the French and Indian War to the Barbary Wars and just happened to mention that the U.S. became yeah. independent. Well, I wanted to that. ask you about that. I mean, what, you know, because there is that consistency of these relentless settler assaults against indigenous peoples before and after the revolution. But did, did the founding of the United States fundamentally change anything or is it a just one line of, uh, of continuum? Well, you know, the settlers, <clears throat> because it was settler colonialism, <clears throat> I mean, George Washington was a settler before he was president. Right. Uh, before it was an independent country. But what was it? We always learned in grade school that he was a surveyor and I have to say, I wondered about that. I thought, wow, because the surveyors I would see around, they look like, you know, kind of working class people. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, one in our family. And here he was, the richest man in the country, you know, with many, many slaves and a big plantation and president. Why was he a humble surveyor? But what they were doing, the settlers were, were um, I mean, they were, after all, British. You know, they were a knockoff of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. They had the, and many of these settlers were already settlers in Northern Ireland. You know, when they when they came, they were either Anglo Irish or Scots Irish, uh, who were brought in to as settlers to uh, displace the indigenous Irish, mm -hmm. and that whole system had been set up. So, uh, and then the Puritans, of course, had their uh, ideology of, the, of Zion, you know, and, and building the new Jerusalem. Right. And you call this all this culture of conquest uh, that develops even before people right. start settling right. in the United in the North America. Yeah, and I include the Spanish, uh, you know, the well, the Crusades in Christ, you know, Christian Europe, but uh, especially the so-called reconquest of the, of the Iberian Peninsula by the Christian uh, monarchs under the Pope, um, that this introduced the, then the, you know, the, the doctrine of discovery, that um, uh, taking non-Christian lands is perfectly legal, uh, simply planting a flag, simply uh, declaring it. And that was papal law called the doctrine of discovery at 1453. Um, it was given first to the Portuguese monarchy to... Um, to invade West Africa and take uh, uh, slaves. So even before the Atlantic slave trade, uh, slaves were being taken and, and bought and sold, you know, on the European market all over, you know, the uh, capital cities and um, especially in Spain and Portugal, which weren't separate yet. And then, uh, and then a second, you know, addition to that doctrine of discovery was because um, it just gave it to the Portuguese after Columbus' voyage of 19, uh, in 1494 gave it to the Spanish uh, monarchy as well uh, to be able to uh, take the uh, Americas. <clears throat> so this is um, this might seem arcane and uh, you know uh, just an interesting fact of history, but in fact it was, uh, has become a part of the U.S. Constitution through the Supreme Court decisions of the Marshall Court in the 1820s, um, the Cherokee cases, where they decided, uh, named the Doctrine of Discovery and said that it had been the law of Europe, but it shows clearly the, the complete identification with the colonial powers in Europe, in those decisions, and <clears throat> so it uh, established 
that um, Native people might be able, with the you know goodness of the of the uh, conqueror, uh, to stay on their land, but they had no inherent rights. <clears throat> they had no um, certainly no private property rights, but no uh, rights whatsoever. They had a, they were a political entity, and only at the you know the um, the permission of the government. So that still stands. Uh, Native people they're always in a very very precarious position because. Um, you know, time and again, I mean, with termination in 1983, the Termination Act was dissolve all of the reservations, you know, and, and under the U.S. Constitution, that's perfectly legal. They can do it any time they want. <clears throat> so that colonial system is still intact under medieval um, papal law. Oh, absolutely. I was just last week uh, met with the general counsel of the Onondaga Nation, whose land rights action, the Onondaga's land rights action, was recently shut down um, after a decision in an Oneida case where Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Oh, it's still being used. Uh, Absolutely. And and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's quite celebrated as this sort of paragon of liberal jurisprudence, wrote the uh, majority position in Cheryl versus Oneida, which once again, relied upon the martial courts and the doctrine of discovery. Right. Yeah. Naming them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's, uh, that's, I try to, you know, this terminal narrative I spoke of, uh, Mm -hmm. I try to, throughout the book, to bring the present in. This is no longer, you know, this is still in effect because this idea that this is all just history and let's move on, you know, well, no, it's still in place. It's still affecting people. It still makes people, it's still a trauma where people lose everything they have, their whole identity, their existence as a people, you know, this, this kind of genocidal threat all the time because what genocide, the genocide convention deals with is not just killing a bunch of people, but dissolving the existence of a people. And that can be done with a stroke of a pen, not just with with guns. You know, I wanted to, that, that, you know, speaking so clearly and frankly about the genocidal process is something that unfortunately, um, even within um, some of the most critical scholarship in Native American studies, is not often um, used as a term, as a descriptor. Uh, and you write at the beginning that you wanted to, that you have an issue, you take issue with a, with an emphasis instead that you've seen on uh, agency or, um, or encounter as a term to describe the interaction between the colonized and colonizers. Um, but of course, you do emphasize throughout this book instances of indigenous resistance, of power, right. of survival. So what is the distinction for you? Is it possible to account for contingency and the fact that none of this was inevitable, which is part of what people mean when they talk about agency without necessarily obscuring uh, or excusing genocide, which when taken to the extreme, the sort of agency framework can do. How did you approach that? Well, you know, I really just use the, I think you have to have some kind of definitions and people really get, um, have misinformation about what genocide is. You know, they it's been used in so many um, false cases, especially by you know Samantha Power and and the, the humanitarian interventionists uh, right. in the past few years. That um, 
uh, Rwanda was not a genocide. You know, Cambodia was not a genocide by the definition of the Genocide Convention. It means uh, it means doing uh, the intention to do away with a particular group of people forever, one way or another, by any means necessary. And it doesn't even, not one person has to die, you know. I mean, right now, not one person has to die. A lot of people have to live in miserable conditions for it to be policy. But, of course, you know, the killing, the torture, the terror, that that is certainly um, over two centuries the, the mode of, uh, of uh, elimination. And um, so, you know, the genocide, I... I you know, I, I I deal with it very, very... The terms of the Genocide Convention uh, are very, very clear. You know, it deals with group rights, collective rights. It's not about a bunch of, you know, a, a population, uh, you know, political grouping, like in Cambodia, killing, you know, their own people. Um, that's simply a war crime, you know, which is just as bad. And it's not that one is worse than the other. It's just different, you know. And and um, that yeah I, I was at NASA in uh, uh, Washington D was it Washington no in Austin last year and um, Paul Smith uh, who's at the uh, Native Native American Museum uh, Smithsonian I, he gave a paper um, denying um, genocide it exists that he basically taking Ward Churchill's bombastic stuff and saying this is all full of air. And that's why, you know, that that inaccurate portrayal or trying to make up things that can, that kill off a bunch of native people, you don't have to do that, you know, to mm-hmm. <laughs> describe what genocide is. The Termination Act was a genocidal policy um, and it wasn't, you know, going out and killing people. So I, you know, I asked in the Q&A, and I, I said, you know, that, that um, well, there were several questions, and people really agreed with him, and they said, you know, this thing about genocide, it's, over, um, it's overdone and all. Um, I did notice that in that particular uh, group, uh, in that particular audience, that there were only and maybe 30 people there, maybe only four or five young Native people, probably like graduate students. So I thought that was peculiar that it was mostly white uh, scholars, even though it was a Native American studies mm-hmm. conference. But um, so I, I just said, you know, um, have you read the Genocide Convention, Paul? You know, because he used to do international work with us in the beginning, the International Indian Treaty Council. And when we took it to the UN, you know, we were, it was one of the fundamental documents that we said this, you know, applies, this international applies to Native people of North America. And he said no. And so I described it there and I said, it's, you know, it's the case, I agree with you about Ward Churchill's, you know, making up things. And you don't have to have smallpox blankets and, uh, you know, that kind of in- intention isn't necessary for it being genocide. But I think it's important, not just because, I mean, the term is problematic, but I think for Native people to um, give it up on, uh, you know, when there's a powerful international law instrument available Mm. um, to argue for their land rights and their treaty rights, 
um, on the international stage that and and also to and, and the US is complicit. They have now right they didn't ratify the genocide convention until nineteen eighty eight, forty years after every other country in the world. And that was precisely because they knew that the native situation, if not slavery, also applied. Uh, or at least the transatlantic slave trade. So uh, I said I, I think it would really be foolish, you know, not to um, not to include that and clarify what it is, just because it's been misused, especially by the U.S. government, in using it for um, things that really doesn't apply to, and only in Africa. <laughs> Or well, yeah, uh, they didn't. They didn't even push on having it in Serbia. They, they decided on war crimes and not genocide. But um, Samantha Power was really pushing for um, for genocide. Wrote a whole book on how no one wanted to mention the word, and then lays out cases that aren't even relevant to the genocide convention, and never mentions you know native people or I mean she mentions the Holocaust, but. The intention of um, the, you know, the Holocaust survivors, you know, who were drawing up that, um, and legal experts drawing up the Genocide Convention, it it wasn't, you know, just naming something to give some country a bad name. It's called the the prevention of genocide and the protection, prevention and protection of people from genocide. So, so that this wouldn't happen again. So I really think next to the um, obvious and in a short span of time uh, genocidal policy of, of the Third Reich against uh, Jewish people that was uh, it wasn't unique it, it was, well it was, it was Pretty, you know, it's a modern, uh, it's a modern phenomenon that um, also has has its um, uh, threads in colonialism. It's, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this saying that the the uh, uh, genocide uh, started with the uh, with the Crusades, and then came, you know, to, but it also went through the Americas, and um, it's a colonial situation. When one of these, uh, I was living in Geneva, working in Geneva uh, with a UN um, agency in 1984, when a French, um, a French uh, genocider was, was caught, you know, somewhere in in the world and brought to trial in France um, for genocide. And his defense lawyer was a Senegalese, uh, brilliant Senegalese lawyer. And I found myself, you know, listening on the radio to these um, arguments because this Senegalese lawyer, I'm sure you know, he couldn't care less about this man and knew he was going to be convicted. But what he did do is give this, you know, this whole history of genocide of colonialism that was just brilliant. And um, I said, yeah, you know, this is this is colonialism really initiated, you know, from the Crusades to 
the the uh, expulsion of the Muslims and and Jews from Spain uh, to the displacement of the Irish, and then uh, it, was, it was all preparation moved over to the Americas, and in full force, all these institutions were in place of a genocide, and um, so that's been with us. And then it comes to this this boiling point of uh, the crazed uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, you know, a cult, that they decide on a final solution that kind of crystallizes, wow, you know, this is, you know, this is, uh, uh, but it's really a part, they said they were the 500-year right, and they really were. They began with, you know, with the 1492. <laughs> there's, an, uh, there's an amazing quote in the book, um that jumped out at me. You quote Otto von Bismarck in the late 19th century saying the, you know, the entire modern world is built on the colonization of, of North America. Um, and it's interesting because these connections that these sort of archetypical imperialist um, uh, state leaders, whether it's Bismarck or, or even up through the Third Reich, they recognize the connections between colonialism, colonization, um, and the modern nation, nation state in Europe much more than I think many historians understand those connections today. Um, yeah, because Germany wanted to be a colonial power. Right, exactly. And um, uh, they went for it, you know, Southwest Africa and colonies in the Pacific, and they were latecomers, you know, so they decided to just take over all of Europe, you know, and their colonies. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was always about colonialism, and it is really interesting how U.S. historians kind of evade, even the diplomatic historians who um, admit to the, you know all these invasions around the world. They they never talk about the continent, you know, this right. continent itself, and how it started with these little thirteen colonies on the coast, and then somehow became a whole. I mean, it's it's like this this inherent manifest destiny. It was just destined to be that way, you know. Mm. And, and, the, and and that's a history, you mm. know, they see the finished thing and they don't like alternative history, what could have happened. Right. But, they, they deny that connection even as, as you point out repeatedly throughout the book, both the tactics and the very language that U.S. military operations uses throughout the world is so clearly drawn from... Um, colonial settler expansion. Yeah. Yeah, and it's no accident. And the military is so honest about it. You know, I use Robert Kaplan's book. Yeah, that was I mean, an incredible... Uh, I, You know, the, please go on. I just wanted to, to, to mention how incredible that was, those quotes you pulled from that book at the end. Yeah, well, that was another book that jumped out while I was writing, you know, got published while I was writing this, that, uh, that uh, wow, you know, he's really telling it like it is and mm -hmm. documenting everywhere in the world where this is going on and saying it's modeled on the Army of the West. And it's almost perfect. Can you explain uh, what that what that book is for people who aren't familiar? Um, yeah, it's called uh, Imperial Grunts is the name of the book. And uh, it takes case studies of uh, Colombia, uh, the Philippines, and, um, well, let's Afghanistan, yeah. Uh, so it was published just about seven years ago. So it has quite a bit of material on Afghanistan, too. And he says these are not the... He keeps emphasizing these are only 
a few examples of the more than 100 counterinsurgencies the U.S. military is carrying around and uh, around the world at that time. And that's probably much more now yeah. than it was then. And the thing he... Um, and, of course, the Army of the West was the post-Civil War when all those Union generals became uh, the generals carrying out the... Um, you know, the genocide of the West, the displacement, elimination of Native people, the 40-year Apache War, the, you know, 40-year uh, Sioux War, Cheyenne. Uh, it, um, uh, every one of those generals had been Union generals, Sheridan, all of them, you know, had been Union generals, and then the soldiers, including the Buffalo soldiers, unfortunately, the... Um, the segregated African-American combat troops who were um, the actual combat troops that that invaded the northern plains also were sent into Mexico and to the Philippines, you know, like uh, 1898 and then 1914 into Mexico, hunting uh, uh, Pancho Villa, also into uh, Puerto Rico and and Cuba. So the, um, the whole... You know, that whole buildup of the industrial uh, modern army, uh, but they still, the core of it underneath all of that, like Kaplan says, is the counterinsurgency. Because none of this is about protecting, you know, the homeland. None of it is. It's all about, um, you know, the, the being the superpower and maintaining that. And, of course, Kaplan is, is applauding. I mean, he's for all that, but he just tells it like it is, and he's saying you people don't understand, you know, that, that how important it is <laughs> that we're doing these things. And um, you really got it. These people are, uh, you know, these, these grunts, the imperial grunts who do this work, for them, their source of inspiration are, you know, the Indian Wars. And, you know, even Wounded Knee, uh, the massacre of uh, nearly 300 unarmed, mostly elderly uh, men and women, um, women and children, uh, in the, you know, dead of winter, and as they were trying, they were starving and trying to make their way to turn themselves into the army just to, you know, get fed. And... Uh, Custer's old um, regiment, the Seventh Cavalry, um, they just took revenge. You know, they just, they just killed all those people. It was just a turkey shoot, and it, but it's called in U.S. history annals is called a battle. And in in the column that says "win or loss," you know, it's a win. Yeah. For thirty congressional medals of honor right. that have never been rescinded. So. That they're proud of that, you know. It's not something that's embarrassing to the U.S. military. The other thing I really felt um, I discovered in this is is something that's quite scary, and that is that um, it's scary because the civilian population um, is convinced of just the opposite, including the whole history. Story, history establishment, I think, except the military historians, and that is that the the military is a, a minor institution in the United States, and yet it's the only one that's trusted, 
Why in polls? It's the only department of the of the government that shows this great amount of, of trust in its integrity and real love, you know, for the soldiers. I mean, googling love, and it's you know, it, it's it's not just its portion of the budget which they minimize by taking out everything, all the dependencies on it. You know, they don't include Boeing and you know, all these all these things that exist around the military industrial complex. But this is really a militarily ruled nation, you know. I mean, I think I think that's really scary. It's not new, you know. It didn't just happen, but it from the beginning, this military control has been. It's been, you know, because it's a colonial um, wrapped in colonialism and settlement. It's obscured, you know, how much. Power and consistency. It's the most consistent, um, you know, consistent. Uh, and then it's also the harbinger of, um, uh, of progress, you know, the innovation of, of uh, desegregation of gays, you know, in the military and so forth. Uh, it's, a, it's an important social institution that I don't think is considered by historians enough. They really stay away, except the few, you know, and the military historians who aren't in the military, um, they're usually writing, you know, about um, battles. You know, they're very involved in the in the mechanics of war and, and not really the role of the military. So we're... So um, I think, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think Native Studies, you know, really has a lot to contribute to... Um, a whole new, you know, understanding of U.S. history. So I think my book is, is, um, you know, just just one contribution. There's this new book out. I don't know if you've seen it. I just wrote a review of it. Um, that is why you can't teach United States history without American Indians. Yes, I have it. It's a, it's a great, uh, really important contribution. If it didn't have yeah. so many co-editors, I'd have them on the podcast, but. It's hard yeah. to get everybody in one place. Get but. everyone in one. They're all good. Each and every one of those yeah. pieces is just really brilliant, and I wish I'd had it. <laughs> well, I wanted, to, um, I wanted to ask you, since we're getting close to the end of our time together, um, to reflect a little bit more on um, what's now really the, the – we're entering, I guess, the fourth decade of, of Native American studies as a um, – as a field in, in, in the academy, um, even though obviously people were working on these issues before that. Um, and, you know, you were, uh, uh, your mentors are some of the, the luminaries, the founders of this field, um, Vine Deloria and Jack Forbes, um, and, and you've maintained involvement on, in it up through this present um, and, and very recent association, the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. So by, by way of conclusion, I'm hoping you can reflect a little bit on, um, you know, the first four decades of Native American studies. Are you encouraged by how it's grown? Are you concerned? Where do you see it going from here? Well, I'm very encouraged. I, there's no way this book could have been written really even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, just because the access I had to ideas and, um, you know, just, just documentation materials, particularly, well, Jody Bird's book, The Transit of Empire, mm-hmm. you know, that it was just, just a gift. I, I use a lot of her. She makes those connections, you know, between the military 
present and uh, you know the the war on terror and the the, the precedents they're using are precedents of uh, of native people comparing um, Al Qaeda to Seminole Indian resistors of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Army. So um, there's so much, and when I because I'm old enough to know when I started teaching Native American studies in 1974, um, the first course ever taught at uh, you know at this Cal State University. I taught at um, all I really all there really was published. Of course, they had vines um, stuff, but it was a little bit special. You know, it was movement stuff, and these students were all working class students, and so. I, at Antique Bow, you know, but her books were really big and specialized on, on different Native nations. And so I would make up readers, you know, of various things, some uh, unpublished things, you know, just talks at, uh, talks at Jack Forbes. So people did start publishing, you know, then there was uh, Howard Adams' wonderful book uh, on Canada, but it was on Canada. Jack Forbes began publishing, uh, well, he had already, back in 1960, published an amazing book called Apache's uh, Navajos and Spaniards, which I used a lot in my dissertation. Um, I think it's still, you know, really an amazing book. Uh, But there were so few working on it at that time, and um, Brian Deloria really is important. He started, uh, he just went around and he sort of gathered all of us around. He kept, he would set up panels at different, uh, like the Western Historical Association or the Western Social Science Association, the Anthropology, uh, you know, the AAA. And because he was well-known, he'd become a best-selling author, they couldn't really turn him down. And so he would take us to these really, uh, hostile atmosphere <laughs> and, and uh, um, get us used to, you know, making arguments and making presentations. And and so, you know, I seeing it now and how this, this two, it's really almost two generations of uh, doctoral uh, graduate you know, students, uh, because at first it was very hard to get Native people to go into anything but law or engineering or medicine, because that's what the, you know, like the Navajo scholarships were all keyed to those major professions. And that's very important for nation building. I know, you know, uh, who was I to say, no, you should do a history graduate degree and probably not get a job (laughs) or be any help whatsoever. I mean, it's not a very good sell. But um, I think, you know, just the movement itself, just pe- the activism that carried on that young people raised in the last two generations and the um, uh, elders being able to, you know, being asked to speak and teach the younger people, uh, they're gaining confidence, you know, that um, to do that, that all of that stirred up, you know, by Alcatraz and Wounded Knee and, you know, so many other... And back to the 50s, you know, really these intellectuals, Darcy McNichol and others who started um, in the 50s uh, developing, they even developed this colonial framework, you know, it kind of got lost in between, but um, they were, you know, very involved in um, 
looking at the UN, the Genocide Convention, and and all, and um, so that you know we weren't. I, I don't know. We didn't know it. there was this kind of gap um, because of the Cold War. That new book on uh, Native American Cold War and the Cold War, Native American activism during the Cold War is really important to understand why we were cut off from uh, knowing about it, really. Um, so, at least AIM, you know, um, National Indian News Council had more of a, a inheritance of that. But I just, I just think it's amazing, you know, the... Um, I didn't make it this year to uh, NASA. Uh, there's also the American Indian Studies Association that uh, uh, usually meets at Arizona State University, but it, uh, I think it met this year at Albuquerque University of Mexico. And then in Canada, you know, the, the, so much of the work on settler colonialism coming out of Canada is also applicable here and vice versa. And in New Zealand, you know, the scholars there in Australia. Um, so NASA is, a, you know, an international people from all of those places come. And I, I think more and more will come from Latin America. Um, so I think having this um, international comparative studies of colonialism is, is just, you know, it's just flourishing. It's almost just taken for granted by graduate students now, native graduate students. It's so good to see. You know, it's a, I'm very excited about it. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of problems. I'm not, you know, deeply involved in the, you know, making the sausage these days. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure there are plenty of problems, as there always is in any pursuit. But um, from my point of view, you know, what was I had accessible because of Native Studies, it was, it was uh, you know, just in the time when this went to publication, um, the books I had put in recommended further reading, um, four more books came out that I, you know, I couldn't get listed. And then when uh, the paperback came out, the publisher said, no, you can make some changes, but you can't add pages. <laughs> So I feel bad that, you know, the list doesn't include, uh, by now it's even three or four or more, you know, and uh, that's so exciting, you know, and really quality. It's hard to keep up with the literature now, which was, you know, very easy in the 80s <laughs> to keep up with every article, every book. Uh, but now it's just, it's, it's great. So you all are doing a great job, you know. Um I think Ned and uh, uh, Jennifer Dinsdale and others who are in the history field are um, really important, you know, and hopefully mentor a lot, because we need historians. Um, other fields, you know, there's a tendency to go into literature and English for uh, Native scholars, and that's important, too, because of um, the oral tradition and, and the... Um, the great native literature preceded academic literature, you know, and really in the 60s blossomed. And um, it's very important, but I do think we need uh, we need good, solid historians, too, to be teaching in history departments as well as Native American studies. Well, Professor Dumbartis, thank you so much for your time and for uh, writing an Indigenous People's History of the United States, which I encourage folks to pick up. It's now out in paperback from Beacon Press. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. That was my conversation with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz.
author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, just out in paperback from Beacon Press. You can hear all of the past podcasts at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. The New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.